0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field.
1: Uh, So welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. Today we have Dr. John Lawrence joining us on the podcast Dr. Lawrence is originally from Illinois. He completed his undergraduate medical school at Dartmouth. He then completed a family practice internship, after which he worked on a Navajo reservation in Arizona as a general medical officer. He resumed his training in general surgery at the University of Rochester, followed by a pediatric surgery fellowship at St. Christopher's Hospital in Philadelphia. He's held academic appointments at the University of Iowa, the University of Vermont, and is currently staff at Maimonides Medical Center. He's been a part of Medicine Sans Frontiers, or Doctors Without Borders, since 2009 and has completed eight surgical mission trips to the Central African Republic, Ivory Coast, Haiti, Syria, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Welcome Dr. Lawrence.
2: Thank you so much, Megan.
1: So, can you tell us a bit about your background?
2: um i'd certainly i'd be be happy to and i think um you you know highlighted it pretty um um pretty completely with the introduction but i i took a bit of a um i think i would say indirect route into surgery so i had been a um public health service scholarship recipient when I was in medical school and um It was a wonderful opportunity for me. It provided uh, a lot of financial assistance, uh, but in turn mandated that um, when I'd finished medical school that I uh, would be practicing in primary care um, in the um, Indian Health Service. And so I wound up um, starting a a family practice uh, residency and only did one year. I had kind of realized by that point that I thought I wanted to head into a career in surgery. But uh, went and then did the four years of of payback uh, time uh, in the Indian Health Service and then proceeded into, as you outlined, uh, what I would would call a fairly standard training in uh, first general surgery and then pediatric surgery. Um, Traveling overseas or um, really, I, I guess I would say much in the way of any international perspective, um, it, growing up and even on through college, I'd never been out of the United States except to go to Canada, and um, and so after my first year of medical school, uh, or during the first year of medical school, I had this idea. Well, we've got this this first summer that was kind of a free elective summer, as it is, I think, at most schools uh, still, and um, so and I only the on, only foreign language I spoke was um, uh, was English, and so my thought was. Um, this would be an opportunity to do something internationally, and this was in dating things a little bit, but this was in 1977, and so um, the, um, the the mode of securing something like this in those days involved writing letters to various medical schools, and so I wrote to some in uh, India, some in Pakistan, a couple in South Africa... Um, New Zealand and Australia, and then just waited for replies. And it had gotten, as I recall, about to April of the year, and I hadn't heard anything back. And then one day in the mail, a letter showed up from a a pediatrician who um, practiced at um, uh, Baraguanath Hospital, which was in Soweto, the township outside Johannesburg. And um, he said, we'd we'd love to have you come and spend uh, a summer with us doing nutritional work." And so I took him up on that, and so went and spent uh, I think about six or seven weeks that summer in South Africa and very quickly after I got there, some of the the um, uh, South African medical school uh, students at the school affiliated with uh, uh, the hospital it's uh, the University of Vivadsrand, which is uh, one of the more prominent medical schools still in South Africa. Um, but they very much, I think I would say adopted me a little bit and said, you don't want to spend your time in the nutrition ward. You need to get out, uh, you know, and be seeing some patients. And so I kind of split my time, I think I would say, and realized as a first year student, I didn't really, wasn't terribly prepared to be, um, um, appreciating all that was offered clinically. So, I then made plans in my fourth year of medical school. I actually went back and spent about five months in South Africa and wor- working largely again at Baraguanath Hospital. And um, it was for me one of the, I think I would say, best educational experiences that I had overall. Um, very, very much uh, clinically and bedside oriented. And um, I think really was a very foundational It I think helping me develop as a medical student, but also very much sparked this interest in international health or global health. And at that point, I realized I really wasn't contributing very much. In fact, I was the one who was largely benefiting. And so in my mind at that point, I think I decided that this was, first of all, something that I enjoyed, but but also that I wanted to be able to um, at some point in the future, be able to perhaps provide more in the way of benefit for the populations there when I had a little bit uh, uh, more developed skill set. so that's um so that's how that kind of factored into my um, interest or initial interest in global health.
0: So it really does seem like you started out almost immediately as a medical student, you know starting to get into the global health realm of everything. And then you completed your internship um, working on a Navajo reservation. How long ago was that again? And then just, uh, you know, tell us a little bit more about like that experience.
2: So that was from 1981 to 1985 um, that I worked in. So a little town called Tuba city. Uh, It's about uh, 75 miles almost straight North of Flagstaff, Arizona. And um, our, uh, the role that I served, and there were several people working at, at the hospital that all had this same title of general medical officer, but we were, I think I would, the best way to describe it might be, um, it was kind of akin to a rotating internship, which again, those really, I think largely no longer exist, but we would, um, but functionally we would every six weeks or so um uh, have blocks that we would spend on a given discipline, so it might be inpatient pediatrics uh outpatient pediatrics you know the the outpatient general medicine covering the emergency room, and then surgery was one of these rotations that we could do so it it was really i think I would some way kind of akin to a four years of of um of of ongoing training in in general medicine and you know obstetrics and gynecology was included in there as well so there was a, a great deal of uh of exposure to you know essentially every discipline so with it, that uh, truly functionally it it um um it was being a generalist or functioning as a generalist and the the nice thing about that hospital was although there was this core of i think 6 or 7 of us that that uh, functioned as general medical officers we also had Um, you know, specialists. So, you know, two general surgeons, and they were, um, you know, very influential um, individuals at at steering me, um, you know, into surgery, and I think I would say being mentors, uh, but also a a couple of obstetricians and gynecologists, um, uh, pediatricians. Uh, And so there was this ability to also have um, kind of a um, you know, expertise available, at the, you know, as simple as a phone call or somebody who could be in the hospital as a few minutes to sort of help work through more challenging or difficult cases.
1: That sounds uh, really amazing. Um, I wanted to ask you about as being the president of the board of directors of Doctors Without Borders, could you tell us a little bit more about your uh, experience in this organization?
2: Um, sure. So the um the, the I I think I would just, you know, back up and say I I wear kind of two hats as uh, in my involvement with uh with Doctors Without Borders or Medicine Sans Frontier and I, I tend to use the initials MSF as a shortcut for the Medecins Sans Frontieres so if if I slip into using the terminology and the if it's not clear at the outset it should be that that they're synonymous they're one and the same so it's just the English versus the French title but um working with MSF my uh, initial experience was just as a um uh, as a field worker so spending um, and it's typically about six weeks at a time that spent in surgical projects. And um, uh, those are primarily in settings where you're functioning as an acute care surgeon or a trauma surgeon. And so really doing, I, I think the it would be very analogous to what the majority of acute care trauma surgeons do, here in the US, but with the main caveat being there's typically not other surgical specialists around. So there may or may not be, but it, it often means um, having orthopedic cases come in that you're covering and uh, as well as obstetrics and gynecologic emergencies. Um, so I had done, um, you know, one or two missions a year over, you know, what's now been about a nine-year period in the field. Um, and um that's kind of the the clinical aspect of what I've done. Then, four years ago, um, I um, was elected onto the board of directors, um, and what the the board of directors for um, MSF is all um, field workers or formal field workers. So, unlike many charitable organizations that use high profile donors or other influential people. Um, you know, in that regard, as the, the the people that they choose to populate their board with, we are elected by uh, our peers, what we refer to as association members, with the idea being that we're there to help provide uh, oversight to the governance of, of the organization. And so, uh, after doing that for for several years, I was then just uh, almost exactly two years ago elected as the president of the board of directors. And so, it's really just kind of an extension. Um, of what um, all of us on the board do, but it, it's a mixed bag of, of work. It has some, um, I think what I would say, very standard duties for any board of governors, um, including things like overseeing the budget and and the uh, yearly audit for the organization. But then it also has um, a, a variety of other aspects that are, I think, somewhat unique to it. So gathering with uh, our association members or other field workers um, and, um, you know, kind of talking about the, um, the needs and the direction that we would like to see the, the organization oriented to, um, it includes a fair amount of representation uh, of the organization in public forums. And so I've, over this two years, spoken at, uh, you know, a fair number of, of meetings, continuing med- medical education meetings, but also at, uh, medical schools, um, and sometimes even colleges and even high schools. Uh, And then there's uh, interfacing with our donor population. So MSF is uh, about um, 90 to 95% um, supported by um, just individual donors. We don't take any funding from the U.S. government. So we need to be very, uh, I guess I would say, attentive and active in our fundraising and this independence that that, um, uh, that that relying on private donors allows us as a very central tenant to our uh, organizational identity. It allows us to then um, orient our activities in a direction that we feel is most appropriate and not be beholden to you know outside um, authorities or bigger influences that may then dictate what we as a charitable organization or as a humanitarian organization would like to achieve.
3: Dr. So, uh, Dr. Lawrence, um, how do you? So, for people out there who want to get involved in an organization like this, how did you? How did you make that balance? Like, what kind of uh, what kind of support were you getting from your home institution uh, to go you know, spend six weeks at a time when you were kind of you know a, a field officer uh, doing work on the ground? Did you get any pushback from your colleagues? Any pushback from um, wherever you were working at the time?
2: Yeah, so it's a, um, it's a great question. And so I'll give you the um, kind of a um, two-part answer to that. So I actually first um, uh, applied to work with uh, Doctors Without Borders right after I, I finished fellowship, or actually even in my last year of fellowship. So in 1993, and um, very soon after I had um, taken my first academic job at the University of Iowa, they contacted me and said well we you know have this oppor- uh, opportunity in the field uh, it was in Chechnya uh, which um, was under at that point in a, a time of instability and um, so they said um, would you be available to you know to go and and do this project and my thought was gosh this sounds great at that point they were looking for i think about uh, a month or 5 weeks of service i said this sounds great and so um, the, to make a long story short, I uh, approached my, su- my two um, colleagues in pediatric surgery who were both very senior individuals and mentioned this to them. And um, uh, they, uh, you know, listened to the details. and then I think there was this, uh, th- this, this thought as I presented it, to, well, that it sounded somewhat interesting. But um, I think collectively their thought was, well, well while you're gone, who's going to cover a call? And uh, so that this is all a lead-in to say it was kind of uh, the kibosh put on that, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't deemed advisable. So I kind of tucked that away as something that to to plan to do at a later time over the you know kind of ensuing um, whatever that would be um, fifteen years or so. I, I did a lot of shorter one or two week surgical. Um, trips with various groups, um, and just use vacation time as the, the way to kind of make it a, a more practical from a, a professional standpoint. And then finally, um, you know, in, um, you know, 2008, I really had decided, you know, this was something I wanted to do. Some of these surgical trips I'd been on had been very productive, and some I had just felt a little bit um, as if I hadn't accomplished all that I wanted to. And so in the back of my mind, I still had this very strong desire to want to work with with, uh, MSF. And so I, um, at that point, um, actually made a um, change jobs and specifically um, put into my um, contract that I would be um, uh, expected or anticipating that I would be spending one to two months um, you know working overseas specifically, and I didn't mention MSF as the group by name, but that that was very clear and I also you know so in joining that group and joining that uh, institution, um, made it very clear that it was going to be um, you know a priority of mine and there was I think buy in both from my um, partners uh, there as well as uh, with the institution. This was at Swedish Hospital in Seattle. And um, and then subsequently, when I moved to the University of Vermont, uh, uh, similar sort of setup. And so I think that the maybe the the moral of the story is is to you know now kind of twofold. First of all, I think global health and global surgery overall is much much more of an established discipline than it was in 1993. And so I think the value and the you know I think I would say credibility that people who devote energy and time to that is much better established now than it was um, back in 1993. Um, But then looking at it from a slightly different angle, I would also say it's never a bad thing to to get things in writing. And so, um, you know, I've, you know, kind of put it into contracts subsequently um, to make it very clear that it it, um, is is something that I want to do and I think the kind of the last part of that that I would just add is that it really helps to have, um, you know, great colleagues who are, uh, you know, understanding and accepting uh, of, um, you know, of the uh, of, of the interests of an individual who wants to work globally to be able to take stretches of time off like that because it does impact, obviously, you know, not only call but patients that you may be following in the interim, and I, you know, have been you know, very fortunate both at Maimonides in Brooklyn and at the University of Vermont uh, and at Swedish Hospital in Seattle of having um, colleagues who were, you know, very understanding and willing to uh, accommodate my, uh, my, my needs in that regard or interests in that regard of taking this time off.
1: Yeah, that's really great. It's wonderful when you can get that professional support. Um, in a similar line I've always I'm always curious about kind of the, the personal aspect of um, committing to trips like this we actually previously had dr. Peck on the podcast um, and he kind of went into detail about the vetting process for uh, MSF physicians to, to go on the uh, the trips and you know I, I know that you were in Syria during the time of the Civil War and a lot of the places that MSF sends physicians are, uh, more unstable. And so I was just wondering about kind of your family support for these trips, as well as have you ever had concern about your own personal safety and, or if not, you know, what, what kind of motivates you to not think
2: about that? Yeah. And that, th- this is, um, you know, a, a, an issue, I think that, um, you know, I I think there's probably a variety of of different angles or way of of looking at that. Um, but you know, what I would say is that um, you know um, you know starting off with when the 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 whole issues of security, I think they're all relative. And I you know kind of uh, would would first start off by by saying MSF as an organization is exceptionally security conscious. So you know uh, we are very much looking out for the, you know, the, the safety of our staff members. And that includes those who are coming from internationally, but probably much more commonly affected are the, the staff that work in our facilities that are locally based, so who are in the community and kind of uh, very much um, not only the eyes and ears for us at, at helping the organization overall and knowing where security threats may exist, Um, but uh, also um, in terms of being people who may, you know, may be prone to, um, you know, attacks um, and and insecurity that spills over and and affects the communities that they're living in. Um, So, you know, any place that we set up a project, that's a a very significant concern. And and then the last thing just to kind of throw in that is also the patients. you know, so anytime we're in a facility we also have an obligation to the patients who are now hospitalized that that um, we're looking out for their well-being and again if you said who's the you know who's the the least likely subset of all these groups to be evacuated if there is some kind of insecurity um you know the, the patients unfortunately are are the least mobile so all these things need to be brought into play and this is done at a programmatic level um, in a very, very thorough fashion within MSF so that, you know, literally on a daily basis, there's assessments done when you're in an insecure setting. Um, when I, um, you know, the time I was in Syria, um, the, 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 basically the, the project um, that, that I was working in, um, you know, it was, was one that uh, closed not long after I left from there and another area that I was supposed to go into to work at that time, um the um uh the, the the sort of overall assessment was that it was no longer a secure enough place to consider going into so that, that we wound up um you know not having at least for international uh personnel to to go into that particular location and so um there're the, sort of examples i guess i would say of the you know degree of scrutiny that organizationally Um, is, is implicit in all of this. I I think I would then say if you um, compare that to, to, you know, first of all, the, the sorts of scenarios that an awful lot of people are in. And so again, this could be ordinary citizens here in the United States or in any part of the the world at this point, but there are clearly random events of violence that that can occur. Um, And, um, you know, I think we all assume that risks uh, to some degree. There are a lot of professions um, that uh, where individuals on a daily basis. And so whether it's police officers, uh, firefighters, people in the military, again, clearly these are things that need to be thought about. But I think that, you know, whether it's within MSF or extending into these other disciplines, I think most individuals um, tend to say, um, you know, view this in two ways. The first is you have your Task or your job that you're focused on, and that tends to become the priority that subjugates i think the uh, p- potential for there to be uh, to be focusing or thinking on uh, thinking about you know what security issues may um you know may arise and you know then speaking for m s f and doing medical work in these settings, I think another way of looking at it is um to a- approach it from the standpoint that if we aren't there. Um, to help fill these medical needs. Many times there's nobody else who's going to be able to step forward or interested in doing it. So you then, you know, kind of come around to the question of, um, you know, should these populations just be abandoned? Um, you know, that their, their needs and their, um, uh, their uh, desire to be able to have access to, to medical care is no different than anywhere else. So, you know, ethically, can we really pull away and say, well, they're, um you know for for by whatever means whatever you may kind of deem the security issue that you want to draw into that is it to such a high degree that you think that these people's healthcare should be be sacrificed and um and so i i you know i mean i don't know if i'm answering the question exactly as you may be looking for but i i i think i would say you know yes at various times there have been some things going on around me which were you know somewhat unsettled but um but I felt very confident in that the, the people within MSF who are in charge of looking at so project coordinators and people in our, uh, our operational center offices that make decisions about that, you know, kind of trusting them. And um, um, as I say, with the, the, the benefit being that any place that we can be, we can be providing um, care, but also witnessing and being able to report back to other people uh, exactly what we're seeing and what's going on.
3: How do you, uh, how do you choose your missions or, uh, you know, you you mentioned these taskers Um, what's the process of deciding where to go um, and determining what uh, resources you need uh, to allocate for a particular mission?
2: So, um, so I'll, I'll answer that maybe at, at, at two different um, levels. So as an individual, um, the the way this works is that you apply to the organization, and then you are put into, um, you know, what's called the um, you know the surgical pool, basically. So you uh, apply your qualifications are submitted. Your you know there's a check done, and so forth, to to, um, to demonstrate that you meet sort of basic requirements, and then there's a uh, what's called information days after you get past that session where you get together to learn more about the organization and, um, again, get a more um, in-depth opportunity to learn about MSF to make sure it's a good fit, I guess I would say, both ways between the individual and for the organization. And then the from there, it's simply a matter of there are um, uh, uh, the various – um, ways that you might be brought in, and so examples could be: it, it may be somebody who says, "I'm available anytime," so just let me know, and on you know a day's notice or a week's notice, I could be um, go to to any um, spot. So, kind of an emergency pool of candidates who have a great deal of latitude, or it can be for people, and it's been you know much of the much more the circumstance over my career, um, individuals who um, say, "I've got." six weeks that I can take off from this date to this date, can you would would it be possible to find a project that would that would work in that time frame? And so that has been, you know, much more the 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 mode that I've been operating in for for most of my projects assignments. And um the related to that, but there's no determination over where I may get placed. So it's not as if I say you know, I'd like to work in, um, you know, only in Haiti, it's wherever the needs are that, that may exist at a given time that the placement would, um, would exist. And in that regard, if it's a spot, for instance, when I was, uh, w- you know, worked in Syria, or the sort of match to the spot in Syria, um, there was, a, you know, very much the as it was introduced to me, um, the, the possibility to say, and if you think that that feels, you know, too insecure or doesn't feel comfortable uh, for you that, um, you know, there's no obligation that I would need to go there if you understand what I'm saying. So it, it's a kind of a matching process between the openings that, ex- that exists and the availability of personnel with the um, potential to not really direct where you want to go, but the, the possibility to refuse Uh, or turn down an an assignment offered to you if it, if for whatever reason, doesn't seem to be someplace that, that um, you might feel comfortable. Um, Then at the, 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 the bigger, um, at the higher level, uh, the question that may also been, um, you know, offering of, or asking about how does the organization decide where to open projects? And again, that very much is based on um, need that exists. Um, There's personnel globally, pretty much you know, every place where there's um, you know conflict, instability, that's sort of the for- focus of our organization. So there's people on the ground assessing needs. Sometimes it's the Ministry of Health that um, will um, you know, provide a specific ask for assistance. Sometimes it's a project that may be doing primary care in a region and they've come to appreciate that um, there's a need for surgical services in the in, in the region. So uh, those kinds of um, you know bigger programmatic decisions as decisions are made um, from the five operational centers and um, uh, again, complex interplay between balancing needs that may exist and others who may be able to provide them and um, also trying to 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 balance the portfolio, I think I would say of organizationally what we do.
3: You know, John, that's, that's all you know, really fascinating stuff. I was wondering, we were wondering if maybe, you know, in the kind of the spirit of being that, uh, you know, reporter of what you saw, you had a personal story, um, or, you know, anecdote about some of the work that you did, uh, that you'd be willing to share that something, uh, maybe something that was, a a, a, a success in your mind, or maybe something that was even, you know, a failure.
2: Um, well yeah so I, I I think um you know what I would say uh, is that um, um, that uh, I, you know probably I could highlight the last um, trip that I just did or maybe it's a kind of a tie into twice this year I've actually been been working in Liberia and um, uh, th- this was a, a project that was set up in a pediatric hospital that that MSF has been working in since the end of the Ebola epidemic there. And the um, staff working in that hospital, as well as the community, I think I would say more broadly, um, including the Ministry of Health, had had come to a recognition that there wasn't wasn't sufficient uh, capability to deal with um, pediatric surgical emergency care. And this was partly surgical Surgically based and partly anesthesia based, and so um, in this uh, particular project, the um, uh, which just opened um, in the January of this year, the um, what what's been done is that uh, uh, it's it and, and it's been I think I would say kind of a dream placement for me within MSF as being a pediatric surgeon because typically I'm serving a very broad um, realm of of um, you know surgical patients, but you know as many non pediatric as there might be in a pediatric age range, and so you know in this particular hospital um, uh, we we opened up uh, um, this pediatric surgical project, and and so it's providing um, primary. Um, are providing pediatric surgical care to the population that serves this hospital as well as the broader community so it's a mix of emergent and elective cases um, but probably as importantly has um, uh, is also involved in in training and so we are we're training now we, we unfortunately don't allow um, surgical residents um, you know into any of our our projects at least not at this point to participate from a work front, but we are going to be, um, uh, collaborating with the Liberian surgical residency, um, that exists, uh, that's based in Monrovia, but also training nurse anesthetists from Liberia and then, um, pediatric residents and then ongoing nursing training has been going on there as well. So this isn't an, um, individual, it's not like there's a case, um, you know, in that, um, in that population that, uh, um, you know, particularly stands out. I've worked there a total of eight weeks um, since the first of the year. And uh, I mean, again, again, a number of cases uh, um, that, that kind of, uh, uh, I think I would say maybe have sort of an equal footing, a, a, a case of uh, perforated typhoid fever, uh, a child with a massive hepatic abscess, um, where I, I think we really, our, our services made a difference um a baby there with a, a simpler condition uh, that that uh, we kind of take for granted here pyloric stenosis but that is um you know often um you know can be fatal cared for in um uh, in liberia or where again anesthesia familiarity with cases like that are, are difficult so um so I, I think this you know this project certainly you know stands out um you know in my mind is 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 probably being broadly speaking without really focusing on an individual case is the, you know, the most successful or gratifying of my experiences. Um, And uh, it is one I'll mention parenthetically where we're still looking to recruit uh, both pediatric anesthesiologists and pediatric surgeons to hopefully work there, whether they be U.S. based or from elsewhere. Um, On a flip side of, you know, what about the you know things that stand out that uh, that that didn't that don't go well or that don't go right. And you know, I think I would say there it. it um, you know, again, we've been very fortunate and had very good outcomes. But um, you know, not long after I sh- started there in in uh, in January, we had a, um, a a child who was about a year of age with Stevens Johnson syndrome. So very significant desquamation and what was probably equivalent of an eighty five or ninety percent. Um, burn, who, in spite of our our care efforts, um, you know, wound up dying, and um, so I, I I think I would say, you know, anytime you know you're working in um, in any setting where you think that that um, you know somebody may be salvageable, that turns out where that's not the case, those are are disappointments that uh, that stay with you, and the the limiting factor there probably was our ability to have. Ventilatory support, um, you know, for this particular child, uh, and um, uh, the 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 upshot is that that um, you know in the in that particular setting we don't offer the capabilities to um, provide um, ventilatory support, and um, so I would say that one instance kind of stood out. But I think related to that is just the the bigger issue of limitations that exists. Um, in in what we are able to accomplish in that project, um, you know things like providing TPN central lines, as as I'd mentioned, ventilatory support, where you say, I know that if, if I was back home, this is somebody that I could save, where you see that they, you know, these are our patients that wind up dying, and that's um, a you know very tough um, aspect, I think, of our our uh, the work that we do everywhere um, and I think I would say not just within MSF but I think people who practice globally you do have to um, for lack of a better way to phrase it but kind of triage what you're treating based on the resources that are available but it's it's quite different than than being um, you know being in the US where you again uh, there are events or occurrences that will happen every place but where you don't very often, um find that there's um mortalities especially in the pediatric world but um uh but it, it, again when I think when you see those any place they're very um you know they're they're disheartening and disappointing
0: And Dr. Lawrence, I have one last question for our dissection before we move into our tips and tricks. And my question is, how does MSF work with local as well as uh, outside militaries? I've always wondered this, uh, especially when it comes to security reasons. Or Is there there a big collaborative um, type of uh, agreement between the two?
2: So um, I think I'm going to phrase that largely by saying – no, but I'm gonna say, but there's a little bit of a yes mixed in there. So let me try to explain um what I mean by that. So um in terms of formally working with military organizations, MSF being independent, being a humanitarian, um, you know, we don't align or want to be perceived as aligned with any military group um, because that will then compromise our um, you know, are uh, basically the, the ability to be viewed as a neutral party and to not be targeted by anybody who may be um, in a conflict zone. So, uh, you know, the, that, um, you know, I mean, to give a very concrete example, um, you know, when I've worked in the eastern part of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, you may have patients who are part of the Congolese military, you may have patients who are part of rebel groups we provide care to everyone. There's no questions asked or no, um, uh, you know, no restrictions on who can receive care in our facilities. And at times as you know, as odd as it may sound, but you may have a ward where you've got soldiers from either side of the conflict, um, you know, in the same ward or even, you know, kind of a, a, in adjacent beds, essentially. Um, and so that that speaks to how we Um, kind of, I think I would say, perceive military groups overall. Now, turning that around, um, you know, by the same token and and highlighting back on what we talked on earlier in terms of um, security issues, you know, we very much may be um, contacting or wanting to contact these groups as part of our bigger security planning. And so on a given day, the, the person who's in charge in the field of kind of running operations overall for a given project might say they may be calling, um, you know, somebody, um, you know, in a rebel headquarters, and they made the, the somebody there may say, you know, today would be a bad day to send somebody to the field clinic in such and such a town, implying that there's going to be some activities there. And so in that way, we really are reliant to some degree on the um, information that we can receive from military groups to make our own teams and our own um, healthcare um, provision uh, as safe as possible. So if that, I, you know, I, I wouldn't know, I don't think I'd call that really, um, you know, alignment or involvement with the military, but we will communicate with people on all sides in an effort to provide care to everyone as, as um, effectively as we can. And again, at the end of the day, that largely even in conflict settings tends to be civilian populations. And so, you know, that allows everybody who needs access to care to be hopefully able to be optimally served.
1: It's great. So our next segment is the tips and tricks. And this is a segment where we ask questions about something that's either controversial or challenging. Um, many general surgery residents never perform a cesarean section during their training, um, but some will have that uh, responsibility as either a rural surgeon or a uh, in the global surgery setting. So could you walk us through how to perform a C-section?
2: Um, sure. I'd um, be, be happy to. And I think you know, the, the first thing I would say is that, the you know, the indications for it are, um, you know, widely variable. So it's sometimes failure of labor to progress. And, it, you know, or it may be something, you know, much more emergent. I mean, an example, I think I would say in that re- regard could be, you know, prolapse of the umbilical cord. Uh, and so the, the, time frame that you need to be, you know, acting on can be quite variable in you know anything from or even you know truly the the concept of elective cesarean sections for um you know women who have had prever- previous um, um uh, C-sections done um you know you know can exist but um at any rate I I guess I would say um you know kind of the you know maybe skipping over some of the steps, but, uh, you know, in terms of the actual operative procedure, um, I think the the vast majority of the time it's going to be done through a a fan and steel or a low transverse incision. So I typically go a couple finger breaths above the pubic symphysis. And, um, uh, you know, having said that, in some settings that I've worked in internationally, um, individuals have had C-sections done through midline incisions, which actually for a skin incision or abdominal wall incision works very well. Um, You can talk about the, you know, the uterus itself in just a minute, but typically it's a transverse incision. uh, And then you're, you're going down through the subcutaneous um, fat, um, encountering the rectus fascia. And again, that's opened transversely. And um, once you've, um, you've opened that, then you've got the rectus muscle exposed and um, the, then you're going to be opening the rectus muscle vertically, um, uh, and I say the rectus muscle, but in the midline vertically between the rectus muscle, so I misspoke a little bit there, and that will then um, allow you to get, you know, into the peritoneal cavity, and you can really um, do a fair amount of, of, of you know, blunt stretching of the peritoneum to, once you've um, sharply incised it, so depending on the expediency that you're trying to accomplish the operation in it, it it can go, the opening can go quite quickly. I mean, it's, you know, within a, you know, matter of a couple of minutes, you can be, um, you know, in, depending on on how rapidly one needs to go. And then you have, you know, uterus exposed, A uh, 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 kind of a key step is to make sure that you um, incise peritoneum that allows you to then separate the bladder off the anterior surface of the uterus. And, Um, most of the settings that I've worked in that we are then use a a self-retaining retractor or bladder blade to kind of help keep that down. And that then exposes the lower uterine segment, which in a woman who's been in labor is usually thinned out, um, you know, very significantly. And that then um, typically um, I incise with just a scalpel. So do that sharply, very gently. And you can usually come down <clears throat> Excuse me, right on to the, um, you know, the amnion itself, and then that can be punctured either, you know, bluntly using your finger um, or sharply using a scissors or something else. And I put in the caveat as a pediatric surgeon, I've had a couple of occasions where I've actually had to do repair lacerations on newborn infants who were, um, uh, you know, cut at the time of a cesarean delivery um, uh, with the scalpel. Uh, or scissors, but, um, you know, again, usually not to, to a significant degree. Um, anyway, then you um, wind up taking and stretching that open, opening, and it can be done sharply or bluntly, but taking it laterally, the key there is to, as you get more lang- laterally, to be angling upwards a little bit, because the urine arteries are there, and you don't want to get over into the um, uterine vessels, arteries, or veins, because they will, you know, bleed very significantly, and um, and then you're, um, in essence, you know, at the the infant, um, him or herself, and depending on the lie, which can also be one of the indications. If it's a cephalic lie, then the head is right there, and usually um, it's fairly easy to get your um, your hand around the head. Um, and deliver uh, that and the, sh- the shoulders as well um, by getting a finger sort of into the axilla and, and um, lifting the infant out. Um, occasionally, of course, you'll have a breech lie and or, you know, a, a transverse lie where, again, the, the the idea, I think, is if possible to try to potentially turn the child so that you get the head delivered first, but that um, may not be, be feasible. Um, but then, you know, getting the the, the head delivered. Um, if there's meconium staining, you can do suctioning before you actually deliver the the rest of the of the child, so that they don't aspirate meconium. Uh, but then the the shoulders and and being the sort of the biggest part of the child typically follow very freely. Um, then it's. Um, Drying and stimulating the 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 child, clamping and, and cutting the cord, and and passing the child off to whoever you may have in a, as an assistant. Um, settings I've worked in. Sometimes you'll have a pediatrician available. That's the kind of the norm in I think the the U.S. Uh, but as often as not in the settings that we work in, it, it may be uh, um, a nurse a member of the team. Sometimes it's a, even a team member from the anesthesia um, uh, colleagues that are assisting you that may help to kind of stimulate and, and or resuscitate the infant. Um, then it's a matter of delivering the the placenta, which is, um, you know, usually a a fairly straightforward proposition. And you just want to be sure to not leave any retained membranes if at all possible, because that can be contributing to postpartum hemorrhage. And then it's, um, closing back up and the uh, initial step being the closure of the uterus itself. Um, I've seen it and, and frankly have done it kind of both ways. I was originally taught to do it in two different layers. So two running sutures, I, you know, with number one vicryl is something that we have in our field projects and MSF. So running it in two layers of with number one vicryl is probably what I would do more often, but it's perfectly acceptable to also just do it in a single layer. If you have good, um, good hemostasis and potentially using some um, you know, some um, interrupted sutures to assist there. And then closing back up, the peritoneum really doesn't need to be reclosed. One certainly can um, close that uh, with a, a, you know, a, a fine running absorbable suture. And then closing back up the the rectus fascia, which again, I typically would be doing with a running uh, number one vicryl suture or a couple of them. And then closing back up the uh, the skin and um, uh, the, you know that uh, you know that's kind of the extent of the procedure I obviously kind of skipped over you know the administration of oxytocin which after the child's been delivered helps with um, getting the uterus to contract and and really can help uh, substantially in terms of the uh, postpartum hemorrhage and and I typically deliver the uterus out of the incision to um, to do the uh, actual closure. Um, some people, I think, actually prefer to leave it sort of inside you, but it's a, typically very easy to get it up and out. And I think it makes it a little bit easier to, um, to do the, the closure of the uterus. So that, I would say, would be kind of it in a, um, in a, in a nutshell. And it's, um, I think for, you know, most people, it's just a lack of familiarity with it that makes it um, difficult. I think the hardest part is the delivering the infant. Uh, you know, pretty much all the other steps are pretty straightforward. I think most surgical um, trainees or practitioners would find the, um, the 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 steps other than delivery of the infant pretty um, you know pretty routine of of putting together two things that look like they ought to be put back together, basically. Um, but uh, that you know, getting the infant out at times can be. Um, you know, kind of a, a more challenging step.
1: That was really great. Thank you for that. You're welcome. So our final segment is um, called The Final Five. We just ask you some questions so our listeners can get to know you a little more personally. So the first question we have, is there someone outside of medicine who has been influential in your life and your career?
2: Um. Well, I would say, um, you know, the, the answer is, you know, has to be, you know, yes, there's been any number of people who've been influential, but, um, you know, in terms of, of particular, um, you know, individuals, I, you know, I think I would say, um, you know, my, my family and, and children in particular. So I have, um, three children, uh, my oldest is actually a surgery resident who uh, um, uh, was very, um, very complimentary of your program. Incidentally, as a means to prepare for the AB site, um, her name is Amy. But um, they've all been very supportive of me being involved with um, um, with MSF, and um, I would would say, um, you know, that's uh, you know been very um, gratifying to me, but uh, also a kind of an essential part that. Uh, of being able to do this work is to have their their support. Um I think I would 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 probably also, you know, go back even to, you know, when I was um you know, when I was in college and um, you know, some some of the professors that I had who were were very influential at at kind of giving me um an introduction to a broader worldview and to the value of public service, I think I would say. And um, uh, again, I think, as healthcare practitioners, we all um, um, you know to, to the core, I think of what dr- draws us into medicine. and I think what sustains us in medicine is that uh, um, the very simple act of helping other people and i and I think of um, you know uh, some individuals in that regard. So those might be my my quick answers. Uh,
0: dr. Lawrence, do you have a favorite
2: movie or genre that you're interested in? Um, my favorite movie, you know, I would say yes. Um, so I'd say it's a toss up between two, um, Casablanca and Caddyshack. And they're slightly divergent, but, uh, depending on the, um, um, depending on the the mood of the time, I would say that those would be my two favorites.
1: Great. Next question is during residency, did you have a guilty pleasure, go-to snack, something late at night when you're on call that you always grabbed.
2: Um, a go-to snack. Well, you know, I would say, I'm not sure that anything in particular comes to mind, but I was a very firm advocate that, um, that the official drink of the American College of Surgeons was was coffee, and um, I was one who would go around to, you know, any ward and drink the bottom of the coffee pot uh, contents, uh, no matter how kind of brackish they they may have been. So I think I I might you know sort of say it was a drink rather than a snack, but uh, um, yeah, that that um, have a lot of fond memories of that being a sustaining. Uh, uh, sustaining element of my existence as a resident.
3: Okay, number four. So uh, if you were to compete in the Olympics, summer or winter, what event uh, do you think you would like to do? And it doesn't have to be something that you're good at, it's just what do you think would be the most fun?
2: Uh, and that there's an easy one that may be in the easiest of the questions so far. So I um, would absolutely say cross-country skiing. I am, uh, you know, loved to cross-country ski was never anywhere near good enough to think about uh, being at an Olympic level, but it, uh, yeah, that would be, that would be my, uh, my, my dream without a doubt. And there's this part of me that says that uh, if they ever have sort of geriatric uh, competitions for cross-country skiers, that maybe someday I'll still be able to compete at some international level, but I doubt it in truth.
0: Okay, our fifth and final question. Uh, Right now, if we were to look, what would we find in or on your white coat?
2: Um, In my white coat, you would find a a neonatal stethoscope. Um, it does not have a teddy bear on it much as it's, it's something ridiculously pediatric is kind of a mandate of most pediatric surgeons, but I don't have one of those, but I, um, w- would say that I'm one of those, uh, uh perhaps, um, uh, aberrant practitioners that still, uh, carries a, a, a stethoscope around and, and, um, listens to, to, to hearts and, and lungs and, and, uh, and, and abdomens as well. Um, and I would kind of qualify that by, by saying I'm, I don't do that simultaneously with the, um, the infamous, I don't know if this is still mentioned, but a triple auscultation point of that when I was in training was known to be um, frequented by orthopedic residents, where the, the stethoscope would go on in one spot where you could hear all of heart sounds, lung sounds, and bowel sounds, and then have your exam pretty much done. Um, but I um, still use it on a very regular basis.
1: That's great. I don't think uh, many of the surgery residents um, knew that you could listen to the bowel sounds at the same time. Um, so, you know, that kind of culminates all the questions that we had for you here today. Thank you very much for joining our podcast and letting us know more about MSF. Um, We will provide a link to our listeners um, in our podcast notes uh, if they are interested in learning more about Doctors Without Borders or uh, participating in any way. Um, So thank you for being here with us today, Dr. Wilson. You're very welcome.
2: And I would just say thank you to all of you. Once again, I really, um, you know, kind of echoing what I mentioned previously, but I think that the um, between uh, sort of the educational content, but uh, also this more personal um, and humanistic content that your show provides. Uh, I think it's really a wonderful uh, way to expose trainees and students, residents, and practitioners to um, the the wealth of um, elements that there are in surgery to be thinking about. So, um, you know, it's a lot more than just um, you know, sewing and cutting and, and, uh, the, the kind of the art and science I think is really nicely highlighted in your program. So thanks for what you're doing and, and best luck, uh, best of luck in continuing, uh, and, um, ongoing success with the efforts you've undertaken.
0: Thank you so much. Great. Everybody. Thanks Dr. Lawrence. Okay. Until next time, dominate the day.